Welcome to Hunting Land. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joe Baya, joined here again with Clint Flowers, and today we've got part two of the dove hunting special. We're going to be talking about gear. We're going to be talking about stuff that you can't do without. And uh, Clint, are you are you a gear junkie when it comes to uh, hunting in general? Do you have to have the, the latest and greatest, or do you like simplicity? I've got a box of my latest toys sitting right here beside me. We've got electronic uh, ear protection for my son, the what we've got decoys, all kind of fun stuff. So I think hunting with a kid has definitely made me more open-minded to anything accessory related. Yeah, I get a, I get access to a lot of, of gear to test and, and different things. And every year at the start of the year, I've got several things that I'm excited about. But by the end of the season, it seems like I'm back down to my same old stuff and most of that stuff i'm like golly man you know it's more stuff gonna, to carry yeah more stuff to carry that's right uh well we're gonna be talking about that in depth a little bit later getting into gun selection gauge selection choke selection shot selection a lot of different things that go into dove hunt but before we get there we're gonna check back in with jason burbage for this week's what's my land worth segment jason welcome back to hunting land man last time on the show we talked about the midwest and and what land values we're doing there this week we're going to talk about the southwest but let's clarify what we're talking about when we say the southwest yeah hey guys um absolutely when, when we pull these numbers and, and i'm talking about regions i'm basically assigning a name to a section of states that i pull out so in this case when i'm referencing southwest i'm specifically talking about arkansas louisiana oklahoma and texas so in that area, what are you seeing? Are, is there, are there any states that you feel are just really hot right now uh, with regards to the number of sales happening? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. It's just to kind of give some background on the day that I'm looking at right now. What I do is I've gone in and just pulled uh, sales that consisted of tracks that were a minimum of 50 acres or more. So when you get down below 50 acres and you go from one to 50 acres, it's very, very different dynamics in play there. So for the, the macro level view that we're looking at these today, we're, we're sticking to that 50 plus acre range. And, um, and looking at these four states, overall, just from the numbers that I'm, the sales that I'm looking at, 2018, we've got a record of uh, 8,300 sales, 2019, almost 9,500 sales, which is quite interesting. And then for 2020, this is, as I always say, since we're in the middle of the year, we don't have really enough data to give, to give um, an analysis that allows us to be really comfortable as far as where the year is and what it's gonna end up like, but it's still interesting to take a look at what, what's trending. So anyway, and looking at those four states, the one thing that jumped out at me more than anything else was Oklahoma. What jumped out at me was just the number of transactions recorded, over 3,600 sales, 50 plus acres or more in 2018, over 3,900 sales, 50 plus acres or more in 2019. That tells me that there's a, there's a lot of interest in that state. That's probably a whole other discussion breaking down why the different variables that go into that. But that was the thing that really jumped out at me. You know, I was expecting when I looked at this to see Texas just like dominating it all from a transactional standpoint because of the pure size of it. But anyway, yeah, that was it, Oklahoma. You're talking about breaking that down and that's re really where contacting somebody locally to find out what's what's driving that. I mean, like here in Florida, 
I mean, I just sold, just put a property under contract this week where uh, it was a guy who actually lives just across the Alabama line. And he's wanting to move into Florida to take advantage of no state income tax. Mm-hmm. Still going to continue his same job. You know, he's doing the same thing, uh, but he's moving over across the line. And you start to see a lot of things like that. We're seeing, like in Florida, we're seeing a big influx of people from New York for a number of reasons, state income tax being one of them, but another being COVID-19. People are looking to get out of the city and, and move out into more rural areas. Uh, it, w- it would be very interesting to break down what's driving that demand in Oklahoma. But in that demand going up, are you starting to see land value or land uh, the sales price of, of land per acre increase in Oklahoma as well? So Oklahoma, if you, if you look over the past couple of years, the average sales price, or excuse me, the median sales price, uh, 2018 is 220,000, excuse me. 2019, it was 216,000. 2020 is 275,000. Um, again, we're in a, in a early segment of sales. So, so that number, I expect that to shrink down some, but if it trends that way, it's, the appreciation is definitely going to be there. And what does that come out to per acre? That's a great question, Clint. So in 2018, the, the median price per acre in Oklahoma was $1,968. 2020 was $1,933. So a little dip, but in the grand scheme of things, pretty stable, pretty much the same. 2020, we're looking at $2,323. So we're seeing a jump there. Again, that's in line with the overall value uh, increase that we're seeing too. So it's for whatever reason, it's hot. I mean, you guys know we've got a great presence in Oklahoma as far as land professionals there. There's great deer hunting there. That's of course not the only thing that people go to Oklahoma for, but, but it's interesting. Texas, just like Florida, no income tax. I expect to see strong numbers out of Texas. Texas has so many different landscapes. I mean, a lot of it states does. do, but, but Texas especially, you know, it has very contrasting sides to it from desert to forest to mountains to beach. Yeah, Texas is, could be its own country. I think everybody knows that, uh, and Texans will tell you that. So Texas is a, is a really, really interesting state to get into. But again, whether it's Texas or Oklahoma or even when we're talking about Arkansas or Louisiana, every one of those states has, has different aspects to it. So we're big on providing people with information so that they can start making education, educated decisions. That's why we have sales information available free for people to be able to look at on at nationalland.com. But the important thing about this that we always want to reiterate is that this is just high level. And there's so many variables that go into determining land value that it's good to get that broad view of things you've really got to get with a local expert that can then analyze your property, knows that local market, can tell you where the buyers are coming from, what type of buyer they're looking, no different than what you just talked about, Joe. You being the expert in your market, you know how to have those discussions with your sellers because you you deal with the buyers who are coming from out of state to take advantage of, of the opportunities that Florida offers. The other day, we re- recorded a podcast the other day, Clint was talking about how He's worked with clients who have sold properties in the Midwest and come and bought property in Alabama because they can get 10 times more land down there after they sell their farm for 
you know, $10,000 an acre and come pick up a, a track of land for $2,000 an acre. The most important understanding to take out of this is that it's great to understand what's going on on a macro level. There's a lot of important things that you can, you can gain from this. Market health is the most important thing. So Oklahoma jumps out as being a shining star, but these other states, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, they're demonstrating very, very healthy, stable uh, markets right now, which is indicative of what we're seeing around the country. And like you're saying too, understanding the trend is what's important here because I mean, if we look at the if we look at the data, we see that you know Texas maybe is is at a, a stable um, land value year over year for the last three years from what from what we can tell so far. If you're a buyer and you're looking in that market, you're going to want to look for places where there's value to be had as opposed to, you know, and the seller's trying to understand exactly how much their land is worth so that they don't leave any money on the table. So it's, it's important for both people, both sides of the table and both sides of the transaction. And, you know, Clint, this brings to mind something for me, you know, when you're, look, you're looking at these states and you're looking at the 50,000 foot view and you see that the one interesting thing I see across the board is we don't see any, really any decreases in value across the four states. But when you see these, these shining stars, we'll call them like, uh, like Arkansas and, and like Oklahoma, where you're, you're seeing some increase in, in the value of the land. How do you work with landowners to price their property effectively in a seller's market? So I hear a lot of times, well, I'm, I'm going to price it above the market and let the market catch up to it. What's the risk in that? Depends on what factors are going into that, into that local appreciation, because you know there could be a correction that changes that, or it could be very you know, hyper local events going on, like a new mill coming in or some kind of new industry where appreciation happens for a certain distance from that event. But after that, you get back to normal. Or if you're adjoining a highway and that value goes a certain depth in, but then after that, you're, the values are back to whatever the current use is of that property. You got to be careful, you know, trying to ride the coattails of whatever's going on because you may end up, you know, in hindsight, wishing you to price a little with the market or a little behind it, so to speak just to go in and get the property sold and move it into something that's continues to appreciate or whatever, put it to whatever use you had in mind as a seller, time, value, money. Oftentimes that's a better decision to do that than to sit there and wait and try to play the market. My concern in a market like that, because the long-term value in land is that it's stable and constantly appreciating in a reasonable rate. So if you start seeing major spikes in certain areas, uh, typically, there's a reason and those reasons can typically cause a correction if you're not careful or at least just run out of bandwidth completely. That's all good points you bring up and thinking about it on the buyer side too. Jason, you were talking about the importance of talking to a, a local agent. And last week on the show, we were talking about the importance of getting pre-approved. You want to use financing. And I was talking to a buyer this week and I said, listen, you know, I've got three other people looking at this track right now. They're all coming to see it. You take this time you've got to go ahead and get approved for financing. And he said, Oh, don't worry about it. I, I'm not going to have any problem getting financed. And I said, that's not what I'm concerned about. I'm not concerned about you getting financed. What I'm concerned about is that if you bring an offer in these, and one of the other two people brings an offer and yours is contingent and theirs isn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the property, even if you've got the best, price out there. That's just another example of the reason why you can look at data and you can look at things like what the interest rates are doing. You can look at things like 
what the average price per acre is, but you have got to sit down and talk to somebody locally to learn like what Clint's talking about. Is there a mill opening up that maybe, maybe last year your land was worth, be worth a lot more this year because of this local you know, economic factor that's coming in. So definitely, definitely, definitely reach out. Are there any challenges that you guys deal with in crunching this much data, Jason? I mean, because we're talking about records for every transaction in the country is what y'all are looking at. Tell me about how the team there at National Land breaks all this down. That's a great question. To put it in perspective, we've got 45 million sales records. That's one acre and up in 47 states. The interesting thing about all that is you see all these different variables that come into it. And this data all originates in the counties where the sales happen. There's always a margin of error potentially because you're relying on the origination of the data to be accurate. And somebody can put an extra zero on there and screw things up. And so the way that we that we deal with that is when the data comes in, we've got a system for scrubbing it, essentially, that allows us to be able to combine multi-parcel sales that were truly one sale, but there were five parcels, tax parcels that made this made up the property to reflect one sale. We can go in and and scrub out the non-arm's length transactions that don't reflect a market sale, one reflective of the market. So we've got our team in-house that's doing this from a technical standpoint. Then we have our field team that has access to this data as well. And so when they're going in and looking at their markets and looking at the same data, since they know the markets, they're able to easily identify something that doesn't look right. And so when it doesn't look right, we've got a system in place. They can flag it. We've got a team that when these when sales are flagged, they go in and look at what the issue is. And nine times out of 10, they get it fixed. You know, it's usually something that is easily corrected or it's determined to be an inaccurate sale to begin with. So it, it just goes back to the, the, the aspect of that there's a lot of information that has to be sorted through here. For us on the, on the front end, it's about what you said before. We want to identify trends. As a company that sells property all over the country, we want to see where the trends are. And then when we have questions about areas, something seems unique to the point of what Clint was just talking about, then we drill down to and talk to our local guys and ladies that are out there uh, who know their markets. And we can say, hey, you know, it looks like that in the state of Louisiana in 2018, the numbers are saying this compared to some of these other years, what factors could have caused that? And then we're able to get that feedback back from them. So there's not a end all be all for this. It's a combination. And so our mindset is we want to be able to inform the public and keep them informed with as much information as possible. That's easily accessible. And in many cases free, if it's coming from us, it's free. And then be able to put people in touch with the experts that can advise them from there. And to Clint's point earlier about the variable factors that that can come into play with affecting property values, we just had this situation come up where one of our brokers had been working with a a landowner about in discussions about selling this gentleman's property. And actually, there were some partners involved with it. 
And they have been doing research. In many cases, people come to nationalinc.com to do their research. Our broker was in discussions with them and they said, hey, we're going to try selling this property on our own. We've got a good feel for what it's worth based on the information that we got from nationalland.com. So we want to try this on our own. And for us, if somebody wants to do that, that is great. I mean, if we're able to give them information and they want to try to sell the property on their own, more power to them. We're always available to assist. In this case, our broker said, hey, I understand. What are y'all going to bring it to market at? Because there's a good chance I'm going to have your buyer. And they said, well, we're going to put it on the market at, at this price. This is unique. He, he said, you know, guys, y'all are about to underprice this property. And he was able to tell them why with factors that they didn't know about to Clint's point from before. And they, and they realized after the fact, you know what, with what we've got here, the complexity of what we've got, this just makes sense. We need to list it with this professional and let him get us top dollar and get top dollar with a commission tied into that as well. That's something that Many people don't understand. They think, well, I got to pay this commission and that's affecting my bottom line. But in many cases, when you bring a true professional and a land professional into the game, they're going to get you more on top of what you're having to pay from a commission standpoint. So that investment that you're making in the land professional is, is getting you a greater return. And we see the same thing in our deals too. You know, it's easy to sit there and, and look at things and say, well, this is what it sold for, but that doesn't tell you how the deal was structured. It doesn't tell you everything you need to know. So it's all about what's that pot of money at the end. And that's what you got to be focused on is, is what am I going to leave the table with? We've got so much data, but I think we've said it enough. It goes without saying is that you've still got to talk to somebody locally because even when we're looking at these numbers, well, we just sold something last week and that's what it sold for per acre right. in that area, that's got to factor into your decision making when you're trying to sell something over the next 12 months. Absolutely. Or like the examples we've gone over in the past where we had a client that, you know, had a, a, a number set in mind that fell in line with the market averages or the median sales prices, but their timber value was much higher than, than the normal track has. And, you know, I walked in there and told them that, and we got the timber assessed and ended up making them several hundred thousand more dollars that they would have left on the table had they not engaged an agent that, that knew what they were looking at. You always need that second opinion from an expert. Well, and to tack onto that too, Clint, you can have scenario. We've, we, I mean, we, this happens all the time where our people go out to evaluate a tract of land and they'll price it out as is. They've got enough experience that they'll advise a landowner, you know, it's, it's no different than making improvements to a house. If you take and invest $50,000 in this property, you can increase your bottom line by 20% or whatever that number is to where it's, it's, it makes sense to spend some money to build some roads or doing some, some site work to open, open up some food plots or whatever it may be to make that property a little bit more turnkey. It's no different than someone taking a house and going and putting some new paint on it and putting new floors in it and putting new countertops in it and spending X number of dollars and getting a fixed percentage on top of that because you've got the ability to be able to do that sort of thing. So for us, it all comes back to information 
and people being aware of what their options are, us being able to inform them of that so they can make an educated decision. What's best for them? Because what may be best for them, that seller, is to go ahead and sell it because we know we can get it sold at this price in a short period of time versus waiting and trying to put together some other type of deal that may net more money when it's all said and done. But to the point that was made earlier about time value money, how much more money did they truly make when you factor all those other things into it? There's so many variables at play with this. The thought process is what's my strategy going to be with the land that I own or what I'm, what I'm about to buy. The same thing goes with buyers. This whole discussion is what's my land worth. But as a buyer, you obviously you need to be aware of what you're getting yourself into. So you're making the right decisions. These same things. You may be looking at a track going, man, this is a screaming deal. And you're not aware of what the local land professional knows because there's some external factor at play that's causing that land, that land to be priced the way that it is. And you go in and buy it and after the fact, learn about it and realize that that was, may not have been the best decision to make. In the same vein, you can have somebody, a land professional working with you when you're looking at a track and going, all right, you can get it for this price and then you can come and fix it up and use it and play with it and do everything that you want to. And then down the road, we can sell it because you've made these improvements to it and you've got the opportunity to make a greater return as opposed to just relying on that natural appreciation that can take place to it. So it's complicated, but it's fun. As a whole, we just, we just really like being able to work with people and inform them, make them aware of all the variables that go into it and all the opportunities out there for them so they can make the decisions best for them. Well, Jason, today we talked about Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Texas. Where are we going to be talking about next time? Well, we're going to keep going west. The west is interesting because you've got, I was talking with one of our brokers out in California last week. He was telling me about how his market's so unique because he can be selling desert land on one day. And then the next day he's up in Northern California selling a completely different type of property where the the price points are completely different as well. I mean, isn't that a recurring theme that every time we get on and have this discussion, there's so many different things in one area, one region that can cause these variations. So we're going to continue trending West and dive into what's happening out there. The West coast is extremely unique because you've got, you've got agriculture out there. You've got a lot of specialized agriculture. You've got your desert properties. You've got your mountain properties. It's pretty cool when it's all said and done. Well, we're going to be looking forward to that. Folks, if you want to find out more about what your land's worth, definitely reach out to a local professional and definitely go check out nationalland.com and use the tools that are there available for you for free. Jason, we'll, we'll be looking forward to having you on again next time. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was fun. Clint, what was your takeaway from what Jason was saying? Uh, land market's doing what the land market does. It's staying stable and on the rise, you know, despite what's going on out there. It's is pushing forward and pushing up. Yeah, we talked about that back when the coronavirus first hit. We expected to see this and uh, didn't know it was going to be coupled with ever uh, decreasing interest rates, but uh, that's definitely, definitely helped. You know, when you see interest rates low like they are, do you find that people were, you know, say I'm in the market for, for 100 acres of land and, and I've got a budget of 
$200,000. And so I'm looking at $2,000 per acre land and, and all of a sudden interest rates go down. So my $200,000 budget becomes a $250,000 budget. Do you see people are willing to pay more per acre or do they just start looking for larger acreages? More times than not, it's the larger acreage. If their search is more location specific, you know, they may be willing to pay more. If you think about, you know, shopping for a house and you want to be in that specific neighborhood and, and houses there just cost a little more, and that's just going to be the cost of ownership or cost of doing business. You're willing to step on out there, but more times than not, people's range for land is wide enough. They just increase the size of their search in terms of acreage. Yeah. Well, let's get into this week's interview. I mean, one of the things that people look for with regards to land is somewhere they can dove hunt. We talked about it last week with Seth Maddox, and we're going to have him back on again this week to discuss a little bit more of the the tactical side, the gear and things you ought to really consider as you uh, are heading the field usually the first hunting season of the year for most folks. Let's get into this week's interview. And this week's show is brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. Buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. All right, let's get into part two in this week's show, we've got Seth Maddox back with us, and we're going to be deep diving on dove hunting gear. Seth is the migratory game bird coordinator at Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, Wildlife and Freshwater Fisheries Division. Seth, welcome back to Hunting Land, man. You know, last time we talked about those changes in the Alabama dove season for 2020. For folks that didn't get to listen into that show, when uh, what are the changes this year? Hey guys, good to be back with you to go over those again. You know, we uh, were opening a week earlier this year in both zones. So the north zone, which is 57 counties in the north part of the state, will have uh, open September 5th. So that's the Saturday prior to Labor Day. Uh, and then in the south zone, which is the 10 southernmost counties along the Florida border and uh, the Gulf Coast there, uh, will be opening September 12th. So that's a little different than what we've been open in the last uh, few years. We, we're pushing up a little uh, sooner adding more days in the early season and uh, giving an extra holiday for people to get out and hunt and take advantage of. Seth, I know folks are going to be excited about that, but how are we doing with populations, with dove populations? Do you expect a good season? Yeah, population looks good. Uh, the numbers just came out. You know, we're, we're sitting at right at 52 million doves in the Eastern Management Unit, which is uh, all the states east of the Mississippi River, which Alabama is a part of. That's how we manage our, our doves in, in the Eastern Management Unit zone. No, typically we, we're harvesting about 12 million doves in that zone, uh, and Alabama's harvesting about 1.2 million of those doves. Is right. anybody tracking uh, bacon and jalapeno sales <laughs> along with the harvest? Oh, man. we're a friend. Right. <laughs> Dove hunting is one of those things that you, it doesn't require a lot of gear, but you can get a lot of gear for it if you want to, and I think – one of the things that is a point of contention I see amongst dove hunters is what type of shotgun to carry, what choke to put in that shotgun, and then what shell to use. So I just want to use this time to do a little roundtable discussion. What do you go for, Seth? I mean, what do you choose a 12 or a 20 or something different altogether? I'm a 12-gauge man. Uh, you know, I've been shooting 12-gauge all my life, so 
No, I, I try not to get too fancy and just uh, just stick with the old 12 gauge. I use a semi-auto. You know, there's pumps, there's single shots, there's over and unders, side by side. I like a good, well-rounded shotgun, so I just use my uh, semi-auto 12 gauge for dove hunting. My, that's my go-to gun. What about you, Clint? I'd like to say that I'm a dead eye with a small caliber shotgun, which I'm. I try every once in a while, but for success's sake, I'm along the same lines. I stick with my 12 gauge, my A5. I've been really happy with it. My dad, who is a dead eye, he's a 28 gauge, and and he can take a bird that I can't hit with a 12 gauge to take it down with a 28. And he's always very proud to tell me about it too. Yeah, I've tried some 20 gauge dove hunting, and I I'm, I have a hard enough time hitting them with a 12 gauge. So. I've learned to not make it any harder than it has to be. And I, I definitely try to stick to a 12. What about chokes? What do you like, Seth? I mean, do you change based on your stand location and what, you know, what's going on that day? Or do you just have a tried and true choke combination for your 12 gauge? Uh, yeah, I believe in, uh, you know, making the choke fit for what you need it to. Typically early in the year, those doves are, are less weary. So you probably uh, are going to get a little closer shot. And so you want something that pattern opens up a little more like a skeet choke or an improved cylinder, depending on the field early on. But as the season goes along throughout the year, I'll probably move to a modified later in the season if I'm hunting does. They're going to be a little more weary, a little further away. You want your pattern to, uh, to hold a little tighter further out. You're going to have some longer shots. But early in the season, you should have some shorter shots, you know, 20 to 30 yards, uh, maybe 40 at the most. So a good all-around choke is an improved cylinder for doves. And they only take a few pellets to bring a dove down. And a 12-gauge is very forgiving in that, that it holds a lot more pellets. Something like that is pretty easy. But, you know, yeah, I would, depending on what the size of the field and, and uh, you know, bring some choke, extra chokes with you in case you need to change in the field. It's pretty easy to change them real quick. But, yeah, I would uh, improved cylinder is probably my go-to. You're not leaving Joe with many excuses on why he's missing so much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we know why that happens. It's just, I'm just not a very good shot. But in keeping with this thread of the choosing the right shotgun and choosing the right choke, is there any payback for choosing a better shell? Do you just go for the cheapest box on the shelf? You're going to be cleaning your gun a lot more for the cheaper shells, I think. Uh, seem to be a little dirtier to me. So, you know, it, it depends on what how much you want to spend, but any shell will get it done. You know, any shell off the shelf will get it done. Typically, I'm, I like to shoot seven and a half. But anywhere from a six to an eight shot would work fine. Somewhere between an ounce or an ounce and an eighth, you're going to get 350 to 450 pellets per shell. And if you only need three or four or five pellets to bring a dove down, then uh, you're doing pretty good there. That's why the 12 gauge is so, so easy. It makes you look good on the dove field most of the time. Yeah. I know I can tend to get over geared uh, when it comes to just about any kind of hunting but there are some things that I found to be indispensable. I, I just want to run through that with you guys. Y'all get to do a lot more dove hunting than I do. So when you go to the dove field, what are some things you just can't live without? You know, I usually uh, bring a thermosel, you know, especially early in the year. Uh, you know, if, if it's, uh, if there's a lot of skeeters around, you want to, you want something to keep those mosquitoes beat back. So that's a pretty good uh, piece of equipment there to have. Uh, ear protection, a good pair of sunglasses, a really good uh, chair, bucket, or stool. Uh, definitely, you know, can't live without. Those are things that I typically bring, and a, and a cooler with some some drinks in it to keep those drinks cold. Clint, are you a a chair, bucket, or stool guy? Well, this past year, I saw somebody at a at an AWF hunt that had this fancy fold down, pull behind dove stool, this like six inch cushion seat, and said, "I got to get that." So I bought myself and my dad one. It's very comfortable. It swivels. And I can hit absolutely nothing from it. 
went to my truck, got a bucket set on that and couldn't miss. Uh, so as much as I'd like to use the fancy stool, I just think I've been using the, the old school method so long that I just, you know, it's like trying to retrain a muscle. So for now, I'm still old school. As long as it's got a swivel top, I'm happy. When you go to the field, you see guys wearing all different kinds of things. How important, Seth, is camo, do you think, with doves? I mean, do you want to be fully camoed behind a blind? And do you feel like you can get away with a pair of khaki pants and, and a dark colored shirt? Yeah, camo is not that important. Obviously, you don't want to be out there wearing some bright colors. Stay away from whites and bright colors. But uh, yeah, like some subdued colors, tans, khakis, greens, browns, blacks. You know, you're going to be able to hide good enough to for those doves uh, not to be able to spot you in time before you reach out and touch them. So, you know, it's not real important to have uh, full camo on. Don't have bright colors on is the, the key there. On the last show, we talked about legal things that you can do when it comes to setting up a field for dove hunting, winter, winter wheat being one of those things. Decoys is something that you started to see a lot more use of in the field. So are there any restrictions on dove decoys in Alabama? And, you know, do you find that you need those things? Have, have you found success using decoys? No, there's no restrictions in the state of Alabama. The only thing that has a restriction on is electronic calls. Can't use any electronic calls for dove hunting. But yeah, decoys are interesting. The market's kind of uh, blown up in the last couple of years with all kinds of gadgets and stuff that you can use to attract doves from just uh, single decoys that you can clip on a fence row or a tree limb or uh, all the way to these fancy dove trees that you can stick out in the field with multiple doves on it. Yeah, I mean, like you can have some success with uh, with decoys. Spinning wing decoys seem to, to do very well, especially early in the season. They probably don't do as well later in the season because doves have seen them a lot at that point. It, it definitely attracts doves for sure. Check with your uh, your field manager, the hunt manager beforehand to, to see if there's any restrictions. Because there, there can be some safety issues sometimes. Those, those spinning wing decoys typically cause the doves to fly a little more erratically, especially when they catch catch the eye on that uh, that moving decoy, that spinning wing. So they, they do some more dips and dives and, and can cause some uh, some low shots. So you, you definitely want to have some experienced hunters in the field and make sure you're make sure you're shooting in the right a safe direction. Clint, do you found good success with decoys, or do you find uh, scouting pays more than great decoy spread? I mean, they're definitely effective. Where I've seen them be most effective is in those huge fields full of hunters. If you're on a paid hunt or just a big big field with a lot of hunters, and you want to kind of focus the attention of those birds as they come in. If you're the only guy with a, with a decoy or a few decoys out, they seem to gravitate towards you more. But I've definitely seen the erratic behavior that he mentioned and low birds coming in. You always want to have experienced safe hunters around you, but especially in that context. Yeah, that's a good point too. You know, uh, if you have a hunt that you don't quite have enough hunters to fill up the field, you know, those, those decoys can you know, be a real help to keep the doves moving and keep them from landing in areas where there's no hunters. So, yeah, they can be effective in, in certain situations. I think there's a limit to it. I mean, you don't want to be the guy that's that's got a backpack full of the fake dead trees and a 12-dove decoy spread and the flickers and the everything else that shows up. And, you know, there's a limit, but they're definitely effective. Tell the hunt managers, hey, ha- hold on, we can't start this hunt. I got to hang my power line up. Exactly. Well, Seth, I know there's a lot of opportunities out there for public land hunters to get involved dove hunting, but you guys do quite a few things for youth hunters as well. Tell us a little bit about the opportunities coming up in 2020. 
Yeah, so we have uh, 16 WMAs across the state uh, where we have planted fields. So we have 37 total planted fields for a total of about 500 acres that are planted specifically for dove hunting on our WMAs. Uh, and we have 10 additional fields on some of those WMAs that, uh, that are under farm contracts. So, you know, we have right, right around 5,500 acres of uh, dove, dove field opportunities on our WMAs. Uh, and, you know, those, those open, uh, open day, the days vary throughout the season when they're open. Some are open Saturdays and Wednesdays only. Some are open Saturdays only. Some are open every day throughout the season. So just check your local WMA rules to, to see that and uh, get there early on opening day because it'll be first come, first serve, and a lot of people will take advantage of that opening day been putting on our youth hunts for about 20 years now. We do these on private land, so we don't take away from our, our public land opportunity. In 2020, we're having 28 different youth dove hunts across the state. Those are first come, first serve, and you have to go onto our website at www.outdooralabama.com. Sign up. Uh, you can sign up for one at a time. Uh, once your first hunt's completed, you can go back and sign up for another one. Uh, we have hunts uh, from opening day all the way until December. Uh, check our website out. All those uh, our public land opportunities are listed on there. What's planted and how those are going to be managed, and then also our youth dove hunts are on online as well, and the, the locations and the, the timing of those hunts. So, you know, a lot of good dove information on our website. So be sure to go check that out. Well, Seth, it's been a pleasure having you back on and uh, discussing dove season 2020 and some of the changes that are going to be made and some of the tactics and, and tools that can make you more successful. I know I need all the help that I can get. I just want to thank you guys for the work you do, you know, for the, the residents of Alabama. It's uh, a lot of great opportunities out there uh, for folks to get involved on public lands and appreciate you joining us on the show today. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. You know, uh, we're looking forward to dust season opening. Hope everybody gets uh, gets out and takes advantage of it, and especially in this time of COVID. It's, uh, there's no better uh, way to get out and uh, socially distance yourself than on a dove field. Clint, what, what was the first age you had Mason out there in the dove field? I think around four. I mean, anytime he'd want to go, I'd take him to the point he said, I'm not having fun or I want to go, and then we'd leave. You know, I always wanted to keep it fun for him. But within the la he's seven now. Within the last few years, he's really taken to it. He loves it because, you know, he can move. He can be a little bit more free in a dove field than you can in a, in a deer stand or a duck blind. You know, so he's got his dog, his BB gun, and, you know, he's happy. Well, dove hunting's where a lot of guys get their first experience with hunting, period. So you got any advice for the for the new dads out there? I mean, I've got a two and a half year old. Uh, he's not quite ready, I don't think, but he's getting close to maybe making his first trip. You got any good advice for dads out there wanting to get their child out into the dove field or any any outdoor pursuit for that matter? Because Mason seems to love it. I mean, I've been around him. You've done a good job, whether it was natural or you did it. You haven't done anything wrong, that's for sure. So what do you think? I mean, I was given some really good advice to start with, which is focus on keeping it fun for them. If you drag them out to the field with you, so to speak, and you're still focused on getting that limit or sitting up there as long as you possibly can, you know, you run the risk of burning them out at an early age. And, you know, that was my biggest fear is that he wouldn't want to go with me anymore. There's a certain age where you start to encourage them to stay a little longer, even when they want to go. But, you know, when they're really young or you're first getting them out there, just keep it fun. Yeah. You know, keep them in the shade, keep them hydrated and uh, include them, involve them, teach them as much as you can, as much as they can comprehend. Let getting that limit be the last thing on your mind, not the first. Snacks. Yeah. Snacks are integral, I would imagine. Snacks have been integral for me for well before I had kids. So we already had that part covered. <laughs> Yeah. Can't go wrong with snacks, but you know, that's tough too. 
when you're focused on succeeding, whether that's fishing, hunting, no matter what it is, it's tough to get up and walk away from a hunt because your kid's ready to go. But I think your advice is right on point of it's not about you that day. You got to remember that. Keep that foremost in your mind is that it's about them. It's about their experience. And if if you screw it up, you're not going to get to have any more of those experiences. So pay a little into it in the beginning and it'll pay off in the long run. Well, now I have him with me side by side on almost every hunt. He's very good at pointing out what I miss and what I shouldn't shoot, what I shouldn't do. So I've got a hunting hunting buddy for life. Well, folks, that is going to wrap it up this week. If, as you get out into uh, dove season 2020, make sure you stay safe out there. Follow all your, your regs and uh, enjoy your, your first days of field for 2020. As always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like us to email you this podcast, just head over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash land to join our weekly email. That's going to wrap it up for us. We'll talk to you guys next week. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Bai and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. With hunting season right around the corner and interest rates at historic lows, now is a great time to buy or sell land. If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also, Wildlife Management Solutions. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com. And also, Bay County Armory. Are you looking for a purpose-built AR-10 or AR-15? If you are, be sure to check out Bay County Armory. BCA builds firearms that suit your individual needs. Check them out at baycountyarmory.com or give them a call at 850-832-2238. And also, Alabama Ag Credit, as the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com.